Hello and welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast, your podcast to those kitesurfing spots that are off the beaten track, and in case we cover a spot that is on the beaten track, we will give a new spin to it. Enjoy the show! Hello friends and welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast, the best podcast to the most amazing kite and windsurfing spots on the planet. My name is Bjorn and as always I'm recording this from the landlocked country of Switzerland. Before I will tell you where we're going to go today, I just wanted to make you aware of some changes I made on the website. The easiest and most convenient way to listen to the podcast is by being subscribed to the podcast, as you can do this on iTunes, and I already have also a link for Stitcher. But I was a little bit neglecting the huge amount of Android users out there, so I found a nifty little service on the internet, which is called Subscribe on Android. And this offers a one-click subscription possibility for most of the popular podcast apps that are out there. So just click and uh, if you have one of those apps installed, it will automatically subscribe to the podcast. If you don't have one of those apps installed, it will suggest a couple of those popular podcast apps. I've also included a direct RSS feed. So if it doesn't work, you can always copy and paste the RSS feed in your podcast app and that would always work. For the US listeners, I didn't put the link yet on the site, but you can already find my podcast in Google Play Podcast. Now, as said, this is only for the US listeners since Google Play did not make podcasts available yet for the rest of the world. So this is only really in the US. Today, we're going to take you to the Hauptmann Abrolos Islands. The Abrolos Islands are located roughly 80 kilometers from the west coast of Australia, opposite of Geraldton. They were discovered in 1619 by a Dutch ship and they became, they're infamous for their shipwrecks and actually one of the most famous shipwrecks is the Dutch ship Batavia. In the show notes, you if you click on the word Batavia, it will get you to a, a Wikipedia link. This is an amazing story. I'm just reading a book about it. This is not only a story about a shipwreck. It's a story about mutiny, about heroism, about murder, about treason. It's an amazing, amazing story. Why are we discussing this place? Well, it gets, like the rest of the west coast of Australia, an amazing wind during the European winter, the uh, Australian summer. It gets a little bit more wind because it's outside it's 80 kilometers offshore and it gets a fantastic swell the islands are actually not inhabited so they're uninhabited with the exception of some fishermen crayfishing especially but you can't stay on the islands Uh, you're not allowed to to stay on the island so the only way to get there is by plane or by boat but you actually have to stay on the boat in the episode we speak to mick stefan mick organizes a trip once or sometimes twice a year around December, January from Geraldton with a large boat towards the the Abrolos Islands and spends three days uh, kitesurfing, windsurfing and ripping the waves. When I say he organizes it, it's not a professional tour operator. He really does this um, with family and friends, so to say, or to get fellow wind sports and wave addicts together it's a group of i think they can get between 22 and 28 people comfortably on the boat 
So we speak to Mick and yeah, talk about the Obrolos Islands. Hope you enjoy it. Today I have the pleasure to welcome Mick on the podcast. Um, yeah, how did I find Mick? Well, as I do sometimes, I surf the kite forums and check for interesting and new topics. And lately I was on uh, Seabreeze, which is an Australian kite forum, where I also sometimes post links to my podcast and count on the Aussies to come up with some uh, crazy badass, badass idea. Um, and uh, um, so I invited Mick to uh, come on the podcast and talk about this idea. He will tell you a little bit about it in more detail than I can. But um, Mick, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. And uh, giving us a little bit of a, an overview about the trip to the Abrolos Islands of the west coast of Australia. Are Mick? Before we start and dive into the details, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how did you come up with this idea? Because it's not you don't do this professionally, do you? This is more a, a hobby horse of yours. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah. So um, we uh, well basically started these trips back in the nineties. Just a couple of crew, a couple of friends kind of coming together and exploring and trying to find new surf, new windsurf and new kite breaks. And um, yeah, we were looking around. We've got some friends that are crayfishers who uh, work on the islands. And they have mentioned that there is a couple of good spots there that we could try to kite and windsurf. And because the islands um, have a number of islands and four main island groups, there's always something new to explore depending on the wind direction and um, depending on the crew, how hardcore they want to be. In researching this episode, it must be an amazing place because I found some very funny comment and I will read it for the listeners. It's a comment. It is a discussion about the Abrolos Islands. I don't know if I correct pronounce it correctly, but anyway, after this, I will refer to them as the islands. But the comment goes like this. Um, so about the islands. Sharks, oi. Surfed Abrolos three times and each time I was attacked by a shark. First took my leg, then it took my arm, then another leg. Three for three. Don't surf there. The waves suck anyway. They're not perfect and it's totally crowded. And everybody's being attacked by sharks. Blood everywhere. And watch out for the locals. They're ninjas and carry samurai swords. Do not surf there. So I guess this guy was trying to express um, his feelings that he, he wants that everybody should stay awake and he wants to keep the place for himself. So it must be pretty awesome, the islands themselves. Tell us a little bit. There are, for you, they're almost on, uh, in, on, on your front door where you're based, aren't they? Sort of. Um, they're about 100 kilometers offshore. And... Um, it's not like anywhere else in the world where it's easy to get because they're generally here in Western Australia, we get quite a bit of wind and quite a bit of waves, which is awesome. That's why I'm here. And so it kind of protects us a bit from um, the normal Joe Blog tourists to kind of go out there and explore like the East Coast. So it's a really wild area and um, a lot of wind in the summer and that, you know, keeps the tourists away and, yeah, some of the crayfishes try to keep the place a little bit for themselves. Um, I think we are slowly getting over that view. And because it's that far offshore, it's very hard to get there anyway. So it will never be a mass tourist attraction. And it's actually, it's a national park, isn't it? And you're not allowed to stay on the islands themselves. Um, yes, it's a conversation. What is it? A con 
um, and protection habitat zone for fish species and some sort of national park. It's not a real national park as the, the land-based ones because it's more a maritime national park. And within that, it's got particular areas at each island group where it actually got a fish habitat zone where you're not allowed to fish or um, catch a spearfish or whatnot um, any time in the year. So that's a really nice place to go diving and just have a look around. They also have a very interesting history, um, especially if you're uh, Dutch. We know about the Batavia. I will talk a little bit about that in the introduction of the podcast. Um, it's very treacherous waters, actually. You have like massive amount of, sh uh, of shipwrecks around that area. But Mick, you told already a little bit more. You said uh, it's the summer months, so um, our, the northern hemisphere winter months where is the best time to go there. That is also the time where you organize these trips to to the islands, isn't it? Well, yeah, but you're actually wrong. It's um, the best time to go there is pretty much any time in the year. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to focus on is to give people security in regards to the wind. And yes, if you look at wind, then December, January, February, to combined with the amount of tourists here, is the best time to pull off such a trip. But, um, you know, we kite there in April, May, June and, um, you know, surf and dive and whatnot. So there are actually better times in the year where the waves are bigger. Okay, because the surf is coming up from the from the um, uh, the Southern Ocean in certain months. Correct. It's it's in the, actually in the winter months. It's probably has a bigger swell coming up, isn't it? Uh, the chance of bigger swell, more consistent swell is definitely much bigger in, in June, July and August, September. I had one question. You said 100 kilometers from, from Geraldton. Do you actually start a trip in Geraldton on the boat or do you fly out and then the boat picks you up on? Because there is a, a minuscule uh, runway, isn't there, on the on, on one of the islands, on Red, <laughs> on Red Island, I think. No, there's actually um, a number of runways. It's three. All right. So let's talk about, you've got four groups. You've got the southern group that doesn't have a landing strip. Then you've got the eastern right. group. And on the eastern group, you've got an island with um, a landing zone. Then you've got the Wallabies, and they've got an island of its own landing strip on uh, West Wallaby. And then you've got North Island, which has got its own little landing strip as well. So, yes, we start the trip. We leave the harbour in Geraldton at 6 o'clock in the evening. That gives people time to get their act together and to get used to the ocean because the first two hours are the roughest. Mm -hmm. Um, because once the first two hours, we got a reflection from a lot of land and ocean and waves that mm -hmm. hit the boat and a lot of people get seasick. Um, that combined with a bit of drinking makes a lot more people seasick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a good idea to drink before you step on a boat. And probably if you leave at six, probably some, some guests already had one or two beers before they stepped on the boat, isn't it? Well, we try to get everybody drinking uh, from six o'clock onwards so that we can have a bit of fun afterwards and see some green faces and make some pictures. <laughs> okay. Would you advise if you come on this trip? If you, I, I asked this question, sorry to interrupt you, but would you advise if you if you know you're prone to sick seasickness to start taking some tablets some days before you? Uh, because it's a very confused sea, I guess, between the islands and the mainland. Yeah. Well, look, as I said, the first two hours is the roughest part and then we get into the shade of the island groups yeah. and wind and, and then also the swell shade so then after that it gets calmer now yes it would be good to take some 
tablets the first couple of hours and all of all a couple of hours before you can actually do the trip and then you'll be safe and you get over there and then once you wake up in the morning because it only takes four or five hours to get there with the boat then really you kind of adjust it and you got your sea legs so a lot of people are not seasick anymore matter of fact most of the people are not seasick and then you kind of also a little bit rested because the boat has got places where you can sleep it's ready for action and usually the wind is in at um, first light or earlier and doesn't stop all day is it um, is it the wind which blows seven times 24 or is it um, it picks yep. up in it it blows the whole time isn't it it blows the whole time onto your brothers island so um here in Geraldton we've got a bit more of a land effect where the wind changes and becomes a bit more south southeast east and it drops because of that because of the land but out there because you're so far out it's got a bit of a different way how the wind works and it quite it turns a little bit more southeast the wind from the left um in the evening but then it stays that strong for the whole night and in the morning it's pretty much strong again and um usually around four or five o'clock it's the strongest time of the year of, of the day sorry and i'm talking about 30 to 40 knots not 15 to 20. So if in, um, just for the kite surfers, 7 to 10, that's the kite sizes you should, uh, or 6 to 10, that's the kite sizes you should take. Um, no, well, look, um, Jelton and the area here is quite consistent with this wind. So we got like 250 days of wind a year or something like that. Crazy. But there is always, you know, exceptions to the rule and you can have all kinds of winds, but mainly from the south. So pretty much 99% time in summer it's suddenly winds um but i would recommend people to take anywhere from a 12 to um, a 7 or a 5 even and you pretty much can have a clear indication about two to three days before what the weather is going to be on the islands and how strong the wind is going to be so they're pretty good in predicting the wind yeah but then again the boat's 25 meters long it's got heaps of space uh there is no problems getting taking more or all your kites yeah that's of course a problem if you would actually fly to the islands and then jump out the boat because these are pretty small planes actually going there isn't it? that's right there's a number of plane sizes that um you can go but it's more of an issue of actually getting your kite board your mm. surf kite board into the plane because that's got you know it's a six foot or something and that just fits i've done it a couple of times but yeah it's just easy to get on the boat and get another crew and um you'll hear me and my story and a few of my experiences question about it's a 25 meter uh with all anonymity so shower bunks i mean it's 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 <laughs> basics but it's uh it is a, a, you can sleep at least decently on the night isn't it? yeah so um we get we basically charter um and an boat called the iron leader it's actually the iron leader too mm -hmm. and um it's actually a boat that stocks and supplies the um crayfishes on the islands with food bait and whatnot and it's got massive tanks under the deck where um water can be held and where the crayfish are stopped on the way back okay now certain time of the years they also do charters and um yeah where one of those persons that like to have at least one go sometimes two go a year in order to enjoy yourself there so it's very it's a now basic type of setup where you know you got bunks where you take your own sleeping bag and whatnot um but you don't have any i suppose separate rooms so you have to share with everyone so it's not a luxury um event at all and you know you have water and you can have a shower and it's got like eight toilets on it and it's got a second floor where you can have a look out and actually all the way on top so 
all the all the things are really there what you need but it, it is a basic setup and you know there is not much luxury there and food wise i tend to kind of like as part of the uh, fee that i charge is uh, go to the local butcher and get seven hundred dollars worth of food generally um six hundred dollars worth of meat and fifty dollars <laughs> worth of um bacon and thirty dollars worth of rolls and one bag of lettuce or <laughs> Got it. <laughs> got a hungry, hungry lions to feed. Um, a lot of meat lovers. Yeah. <laughs> got it. That's the guys who join you on this trip. Cool. Can you generally describe? So you, you, you. It's a de- uh, three days trip. So you told us now you leave at six. You arrive in the middle of the night. They go for anchor, yeah. and then the next morning you uh, can start rigging your windsurf boards or your windsurf rig or pump up your kites can you describe generally how the three-day strip works i understand it depends on the wind and the swell of course but um, can you describe yeah. that shortly sure 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 so um well and um, the next morning you kind of wake up and really what we do is we look at the weather um if it's in general or well, 80 percent of the time it's a subtly pattern which is good which means that we've got a number of breaks that we've been to and we know also that the wind will be howling all day Okay. If that does is the case, we got options. So we got a couple of safe options. One of them being Half Moon Reef, one of them being Leo's, and a couple of other spots where we know it always works in those directions. But if you got a day with wind the whole day, we can actually do some exploring. And there are a couple of spots that haven't been carted or haven't been windsurfed yet that I really would like to explore. And slowly we're working away and finding these spots out that haven't been carted nor windsurfed before. And the reason for that is that it's very hard to get there by a small boat. And some of these places, um, it's too risky to really hang out with one boat and uh, maybe, you know, one or two windsurfers. So when you've got a big boat like this with rescue dinghies and whatnot, you can actually, you know, stick at the back of the reef and anchor up down there really close to the waves and try any break. It doesn't matter. It's always reasonable safe. This is Actually, a question I had, what you're saying is the big boat actually in, in certain cases anchors just behind um, the reef, outside of the reef. Correct. And then we have dinghies as well, that um, a couple of them are part of the island. Mm-hmm. A couple of them are actually from people that want to take dinghies. Because besides, you know, surfing and kiting and windsurfing, where we can also go fishing and diving and spearfishing and that sort of stuff. So, you know, we've got pretty much all corners covered here. Okay. And that gives you also the flexibility to do different things uh, for different people, depending on where yeah. you are. Cool. It's like, you know, you're probably a kiter. Um, you maybe can kite three hours and then uh, you need to break and then mm-hmm. maybe you can kite another three hours. This wind goes from six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning to seven or eight o'clock in the evening. There is so much time of kiting that you can do. You cannot be there out for 12 hours kiting. Mm-hmm. So you do have actually time to do other things when the wind is in. And it's, yeah, as I said, the wind is in, then it's in and it's blowing all day, all night. This is more, more or less what you described now. This is what you do the whole three days, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We just listen to what, the, you know, the common senses of the crew, what they want to do mm-hmm. with the main focus of finding a break where we can go windsurf and kite. I have a question here. Flat water, actually, because the islands are, are really low. I mean, they're a couple of meters above the above the sea. So the wind blows on a certain part. I looked at the nautical charts. There are some great reefs or reefs or lagoons, actually, 
where you must have some great offshore conditions uh, close to the um, to the islands itself and flat water is this also part of the program or is everybody so focused on on riding the waves that this most of the time gets left behind well the interesting thing is that most of these places that have waves are breaking on some sort of reef so the inside of the reef is on certain places it basically becomes real shallow all the way at the end of the waves mm -hmm. and then it becomes straight behind that it becomes deeper now depending on the tide usually the the depth is between 20 centimeters and a meter and so you've got plenty of flat water to to kite on down there and windsurf now then you also have certain places where the islands protect it and we've got a couple of places particularly leos where it's absolutely dead flat and still 30 knots and it's got a channel coming from one side of the island it's a bit of a stretch island to another side and you can kite about a meter away from the beach pretty much touch the sand and while you're off. hitting this channel and just go you know do massive jumps and freestyle move cool yeah that's actually a question i have so you anchor the boat and you can actually take can you take the dinghies to shore and rig up your um your stuff there so it depends it depends which break we're going some of the breaks are outer reefs with no islands so we rig from the boats if we have certain places that has the islands then the kites rig from the beach and make it easier uh, yeah not much with, easier with the buckets and the lines and all these stuff and the running around uh, yes <laughs> 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 This brings me actually to one of the things. Yeah, some of my listeners maybe not super kiters, yeah, or super, um, or just started kiting. Yeah, what would you say are the skills that to be the skills you need to really make the most out of this trip? Yeah, sure. You don't want to do this trip if if uh, you're just about to be able to go upwind. Yeah, that's probably not the that's right. Correct. That's probably not the right idea. Look, it is some of the places that we kite and windsurf. It's like 100 kilometers from nowhere. So when the wind blows, and it blows slightly offshore as well, from away from Australia, if you get lost, you get lost for not like 100 kilometers, kilometers but three or four or 5,000 kilometers lost. So no chance of you getting back. So it is important that you at least know the fundamentals of kiting and have a couple of years of kiting experience behind your belt. So that one, you know, you don't, um, piss off the people that have to pick you up all the time and yeah because that sometimes happens sure. and and, and in, in those remote type of breeze but also too that you feel comfortable and you don't get cut up by the reef because the reef can be quite sharp as well mm -hmm. so if you want to have a good experience I would say you know if you're you know reasonable comfortable of getting back up wind and you know you have ridden once or two times in the ways or you know, it doesn't necessarily be, you know, you have to be in hot kite or anything out in the surf. But, you know, be comfortable of rigging your kites up and, and, and pretty much can do that all by yourself and launch by yourself. If you have that level, then you're probably able to be right in the street. Okay, and even uh, even if you're not such a proficient wave rider and uh, two, five, six bottom and top turns down the line, uh, even then you can have a good time uh, joining you yes. guys on the boat. Yes, as long as, you know, um, you can be safe and you know how to launch a kite yourself and, you know, you know how to roll up the kite and in case that you get into trouble and, you know, that sort of stuff. So that that's really what the basics is. So, you know, I, I guess one season of kiting behind your back, that should do it well. Uh, you also do every day a skipper's brief and a brief uh, to everybody participating, what the dangers, what the hazards are 
on the spots where you're going and and what the general plan is and where everybody should be careful about, isn't it? Yes, correct. Um, so yeah, we really do the numbers too. So before we leave, we count the numbers and we try to have a bit of a buddy system so that you know people are aware who is looking after who as well. And you know some of the safety is things like if you're really a bit doubtful, a bit scared or whatnot, then you know get a flare and keep the flare in your belt and that sort of stuff. So there's just all common sense that you know you can use in order to make it a good, fun, safe trip. Mm. One thing I wanted to uh, you mentioned before, got to look. I looked at the nautical charts, but I didn't look at the tidal ranges. Is it something really you have to take into consideration, or are the tides not that much? Uh, no, look, there's a little bit of tide and sometimes it gets shallow, but it doesn't mean that you can surf or don't surf or don't kite those breaks. They can always be surfed and kited, yes. Yeah, and there's accessible times that you can get much closer with the boat, with the, but you can always surf and kite those breaks. I know there's so many spots and you mentioned some of them. Can you tell us your two, three, four favorite spots? And just give the people, the listeners, a little bit of a, of a feeling, a little bit more detail about those spots, what they can expect there, yeah, what type of wave it is, and and uh, reef break, and, and yeah, and the wind. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. The first of all is um, at the end of Half Moon Reef, and the break itself is called Bankina. It is a wave where we can anchor quite closely with the island leader, and that wave goes and pretty much starts off reasonable soft with just a little bit of a three meter, three and a half meter wave. So, you know, reasonable size, but not really hollow. Now, that wave just keeps going and it keeps going for, uh, I would say, eight meters, maybe even longer. And um, it slowly um, becomes more offshore. So it slowly turns more and more to the inside against the wind. Even that so, that at the end of that wave, you're sailing or kiting on like a meter and a half of water, and then the wave comes straight towards you. Fantastic. So it's it's like a really good, fun wave where everybody's skills is being tested here. But at the end, you kind of just have to decide from, all right, well, look, it's that much offshore. My snaps are that hardcore that I have to kind of lean all the way into the wind with the kite in order to get back that, um, you know, I have to bail out or you get blown over the wave. Okay. And that's the part that's only a meter and a half deep and is still safe. So it's a really fun wave if it works. It needs a little bit of swell. So that's definitely one of my favorite waves and probably one of the more longer waves in Australia as well. So it's, if it works, then we're straight going down there. Okay. No, no question asked. But um, if we have a really big swell, then um, we can and, and have a bit of a southeaster in it, so a bit more offshore like in the mornings and in nights. So then we can go to a place called Leo's. And Leo's needs a bit of a swell, but um, it's an awesome kite break because you can kind of go around to sections and keep on hitting the spot. And the end bit is a bit of a, an, an, an face that comes towards you and becomes a barrel. So it's quite testing. And... At the end of that, it's actually really, really shallow as well. So it becomes kind of a bit of a challenge and fun. But it's all reasonable safe as well with a few sea urchins, I guess. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, it, it's really classy in the inside and because it's protected by the island. So you get rock a really smooth ride with no chop whatsoever. You can hear a boat going, you know, zooming along. 
and and then um, and it starts offshore and um, you know you smack the wave as hard as you can. So that's definitely on the on the cards too when when there is quite a bit of swell happening. And now the last break that I'm going to talk about is called um, evening reef. And the reason for that's evening reef, that's actually where um, the Batavia first hit Australia, the Dutchies. Just to interrupt you, Mick, if you ever find an old Dutch gilder, you're going to send it to me, aren't you? <laughs> I, I've got another story about that, yes. Tell me the story um, afterwards. <laughs> in a second, in a second. Yeah, but in, anyway, um, yeah, the listeners would like that story anyway as well. Um, so that... Um, Evening, uh, morning rave um, extends, and that's where the Batavia crashed on. And it's actually a break that comes out of uh, a couple of hundred meters of water that hits a 25-meter ledge. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it can absolutely um, cope with any size swell. So, you know, you could have a 10-meter or 15-meter wave down there. It's actually been uh, served during the Storm Riders surf a movie um, with um, a couple of crews like um, um, a couple of famous surfers, Clue and uh, Ross Clark Jones and a few other crew. So we've been there once um, a couple of years ago and it's definitely something on the cards that we want to see and do back and go back there to see, you know, how that break would handle it. And with the um, island down there just around the corner, that would be a fantastic setup. So that's one of the other things that I would like to check out and see if that's happening on, on the particular conditions. So with a little bit of luck, you can try it this year. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Now, in relation to your uh, Dutch Gulden, um, there were some smart asses, friends of mine, who went diving once off um, Harvon Reef, and there's still a ship missing that nobody has found yet, and it's got a lot of treasures in it, apparently, according to the books. They came up with a Dutch dollar, really? a Dutch Gulden. Yes, yes. And they showed it to a few people and everybody started talking about it. And it's like, you should have seen it. It's like a frenzy of people trying to dive in there and trying to find <laughs> it. The greed got the better of them. <laughs> yeah. So everybody stopped windsurfing and surfing at Kaiten and they were all diving for it with whatever they could find. And because it was reasonable deep, like eight meters or something like that. Oh, cool. And even the skipper, who has been there for a million times, he actually jumped into the water to stop it before the corner. Forget about the wind. Forget about the waves. We want the Dutch Gilders. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like, an, you know, a treasure hunt. Feeding way. frenzy. Mm-hmm. Oh. So um, anyway, so the long story short was that and that went on for two, two and a half hours until one of the guys who found that Dutch Gilders told everyone, that they didn't really find it, but just <laughs> bought it to see image out. Bastards. He's <laughs> just taking the mickey out of them. <laughs> you should have seen the faces. That was so funny. And so many good stories. I think you, if you are three days uh, spending with uh, all the crazy guys and girls on a boat like that, going on an adventure, you have some some um, yeah, uh, some good stories to tell and and taking the sure. and taking the Mickey out of each other and making fun of each other sometimes. <laughs> cool. That's <right>. cool. Okay, <laughs> that's cool. Um, let me see. Sharks? Yeah. Sh- no. Sh- sh- no. Yeah. Sharks. <laughs> well, actually, uh, uh, to, be, to, to be honest with you, I try to avoid the topic of sharks as much as uh, I can uh, on the podcast because 
Uh, yeah, it's it's a topic, you know, which which you can spend hours and hours on. But uh, it, oh, I can be very brave. Um, they're well fed, and you don't really have to worry about them. <laughs> but they can be territorial. They're fed by whom? That's the question. By what? There's plenty of Baltic crop there. Okay, good. As long as it's not by windsurfers and kitesurfers, then it's okay. No, but tell us a little bit about the sea life because it's uh, it's pretty rich on 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 that front, isn't it? There's a lot of gray fish, and I saw some seals and. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So we try to usually organize this trip after the 15th of December, and the reason for that is because the demersal fishing ban is then lifted, and we can catch certain type of thin fish. Okay. We can always catch pelagic fish like the Spanish mackerel and the tuna, but the bolting groper and the coral trout and whatnot, um, they are protected in a certain time of the year for breeding. Mm-hmm. So after the 15th, part of that is opening, and so we can actually catch a few, um, yeah, a few coral trouts and a bolting groper, depending on what the fisheries decides that year. Now that's the fishing, and then obviously it's one of the best places in the world to catch crayfish. And the good news is, is that the uh, government last year decided that they're going to open or have opened the Abrolhos Islands for crayfishing fishing for um, the tourists that come in. Because it used to be only a privilege for the crayfishers that had a proper license. So you can catch crayfish now as well and start, you know, eat them or take them home or whatever you want to do with them. There's plenty of them. Um, but obviously it's not a target of our trip, but there are crayfish down there when you go diving. And for those of, uh, of our listeners who don't understand the, uh, the terminology crayfish, it's lobster. Yep, western lock lobster or, uh, yeah, crayfish. Um, now, besides that, you've got, of course, the bird wildlife, which is awesome. You've got seagulls, you've got ospreys, you've got the sterns, you've got the mutton bird that, um, you know, goes thousands of k's and comes down there and nests. And you've got on the islands, you have to watch out for the holes because sometimes there's also duck and you you step in that, especially when you try to launch a kite and you can break your legs and that sort of stuff. Not that it ever happened, but you know you, you know what I mean. You, you can get pushed through it a little bit and then damage perhaps some eggs or whatnot. And they're basically they're basically coral reefs, aren't they? The islands. They are. Yeah. Um, well, yes and no. So the uh, the Wallaby group yes. has two major islands: West Wallaby, Wallaby, and East Wallaby. It's actually part of land that used to be. A attached to Australia, and the North Island is also part of the land that was attached to Australia. That's why there's still wallabies down there. The wallabies are small kangaroos. Ah, okay. Okay, get it. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And They managed to survive there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still there. And then there are the um, other islands that are more coral, limestone islands with a lot of sharp bits and pieces on it. You gave some suggestion what to do to it. There's no wind, so it's Scuba diving, uh, snorkeling if you want to, catch some crayfish, spear fishing, I guess. Um, yep. On the odd day, there is no wind, or you said you just had enough of windsurfing and kitesurfing because you have 24 hours wind. Any other activities? What? Yeah, relive the history of um, the Batavia and what happened. Um, you know, if we go to the Wallabies, there are still some places down there that you can see some uh, parts of it. And we have done it on a few trips that we've dived on the Batavia. And check things out, and um, and also um, gone to West Wallaby and see the fort of Webby Haynes, which was the protection area where they tried to fight off the uh, the mean bastards. The Cornelius. Cornelius, yeah. Yeah. 
that uh, actually um, I think you you have to start speaking Dutch again because uh, I found out that uh, the first settlers actually the first settlement on the um, on the Australian continent and it counts as part of the Australian continent were the Dutch so that is correct yes it's us I'm a Dutchie so yeah so what so what happened is two of the guys that um, were I suppose um, after the mutiny was um, done and um, the guy uh, came back in order to settle things and, and, and save a lot of people. Two of the Dutchies were left as punishment in Australia and they got accepted by a couple of Aboriginal colonies and there are some Dutchies walking around between those colonies that oh, have pulled there and, and different skin. Funny. So they were actually the first European settlers to sit there. That is correct, yes. Mick, what else did I tell you? Yeah, then, since you mentioned Dutch, uh, I don't know what, if you want to talk about it, uh, otherwise we will edit it out. How did you end up in Australia? Yeah, guess why? Quarter windsurfing, kitesurfing, and uh, lifestyle. Um, I, um, I'm a friend of mine. Um, we always were keen and did Portugal trips and, you know, lived in Sandford in the Netherlands. And um, I was quite a fanatic windsurfer, still am. And um, I needed a better spot that I could windsurf a lot more. And so um, I moved to Australia and the most windiest place with a bit of an infrastructure and city is Geraldton. And it's close enough to all the major windsurfing spots and probably one of the best spots in the world is just about five, six and a kilometers away from us. Is there anything I forgot to ask you, Mick, or is there anything... Oh, yeah, let's maybe end um, the trip. So, what day one is is overnight. Uh, are you actually three nights or four nights? Or, uh, or three nights or four nights on the boat? Okay, well, I'll give you a bit of a rundown. So, yeah, um, it's, it's a three-night trip. We are, we're leaving Friday night, and we come back Monday at about 6 o'clock in the evening. So really, it's a trip just to get a few crew together and have some fun out there. And with a couple more people, we can get a big boat. And that's what it is designed for. I did not make many money out of it. And, um, you know, I'm going to be quite casual and be casual about it. And, you know, everybody, it's the point of a couple of crew together, have good fun and, and enjoy it. And that's really the spirit of the whole trip. Cool. So despite the fact that I've got a little bit of responsibility of organizing it and, you know, I've been there for over oh, 500 times now and that sort of stuff. I know quite a lot about that place. Um, you know, I like people just to experience and, and, and experience the rawness and the history and, and the wildlife and, and the kiting and windsurfing spots. So don't expect that you come down there and it's a full on charted business um, professional run because it's not. It's just a bit of fun. Just a group of passionate windsurfer skaters coming together to rip some nice waves. That's right. Yeah, I'm not making any money out of it. No one is making any money out of it. It's just a bit of fun. And it's actually, I looked at the prices, it's really cheap. It's not, it's not a lot of money. So um, I haven't really confirmed with the guys this year how much it was, um, but they increased the price last year and then it was 650 bucks for three nights and it includes the food, um, basic food needs like your meat and your your bacon and your eggs and your one bag of lettuce for everyone and the uh, fish that we can catch and a bit of coffee and stuff. We want to take some special muesli and beers and drinks and uh, special dietary requirements and your, your candies, your mass bars or whatnot and that's all something you need to take yourself. 
we don't do these trips every month or something like that. So it's, it's once uh, once a year trip, sometimes two times a year, but mostly one time because it's just to get the numbers together. Um, that's the issue. And once we get 26 persons, um, you know, the um, the bills are paid and we don't have to cut things short like the, the bacon or the lettuce. Um, and, um, you know, it's all good and it's all systems go. Cool. Mick, if, is there anything I forgot to ask you? Is there anything you want to, to, to share with us? Um, well, I can tell you that these uh, the trips are quite quickly booked out. And this year we caught somebody special coming to the trip as well. Um, his name is Jacob Stone and his brother, and um, Hendrik Stone. And they, Jacob is at the moment fourth in the world windsurfing. So... It's awesome to see this crew going off on the islands and you will see something that you've never seen before. That's the windsurfing side of things. Um, sometimes we get really good pro kite servers coming around as well because they love these type of experiences and testing things Absolutely. out. And, you know, we have only heard good stories about it. And, um, you know, there's seldom trips where there is no wind. There's always too much winds in the sense of like too long. <laughs> and everybody's tired and this and that which is awesome and when they're, they're happy where they're happy when they're back in Geraldton and uh... yeah well they're loving it like you've got a certain type of people that you know that that come back year and year and year again and they can't get enough of it it's in their it's marked in their calendar that's the event that's the event of the year yeah yeah one thing I would say though um don't you know, um, don't be scared if you're a girl and you want to test it out as well. As long as your um, skills are appropriate, reasonable, and you can guide, you're very welcome to come as well. Obviously, it's a little bit of a blog strip, but we do get girls coming on board as well. And there is, you know, it is safe and, um, you know, we all have a good time. And, you know, there are some private spots where you can, uh, you know, get into the wetsuits and whatnot. So it's not like super hardcore as you might imagine it is. And it's uh, welcome for the girls to come as well. And what you described, I think you can, even in um, some of the spots, you can actually pick your poison if you want to go hardcore or you want to take it a little bit more easy. Yep, correct. Yeah, it's uh, it's something you can do for everyone. You don't have to go into the break. You can kite behind the boat and that will be flat. And just have the experience of being out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody's got different stories and different ideas. And, you know, you, you see things that you don't see every day. And, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely um, awesome. Cool, Mick. Before we end it, where can people reach you? What's the best? Okay, so for people overseas... I recommend them to look up my Facebook page, which is Indian Ocean Charters. So just type it in and uh, you will find that. Um, and then um, it's got the right contact details to contact me. Alternatively, you could also email me. Um, and my email address is mickstefan, M-I-C-K-S-T-E-F-F-A-N, at yahoo.com. All right. Of course, I will include that in the, in the show notes, yeah, that everybody can find them there as well. And obviously, you've got my mobile phone number as well for people that want to know and uh, have a chat and want to know a little bit more about it. And my mobile phone number in Australia is 0466-414-321. Go have a look at the site. It's got a couple of pictures already on it from previous trips and whatnot, so it gives you a bit of an idea. Yeah. And yeah, um, one of the things that is so important for me to make this trip happen is to book early. If I get a certain amount of numbers together and the minimum is 22, then the trip is absolutely confirmed. 
But if it's like very struggling on the numbers, then it may well not happen. So it's really important that you make my life easy, pay upfront, pay um, because we don't we don't do deposit. It's just deferment, nothing. That's your Cersei place, and um, and so I don't have to worry about trying to get all these people together because that's the hardest job. Yeah, and the boat costs what the boat costs. I mean, the crew is the crew, and the the diesel is the diesel. Doesn't matter if you have uh, five people on top of it or twenty five. The cost is the same. Same. That's correct. Yes, and you know, it's um, you know, I do it for because I love it too, and it's heaps of fun as well. So yeah, make my life easy. All right, Mick. Then with that said, I thank you very much for coming on the podcast and showing this crazy, super interesting destination. Yeah. Thanks. No worries. All right. Thanks for having me. All righty. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Wanted to say thank you for listening. And yeah, in case you're bored and you don't have anything to do for a couple of minutes, please write me a review on iTunes. Would be very much appreciated. The next episode is coming out soon in one or two weeks. It's going to be an episode about the Philippines, about a new destination. Don't worry. It's not going to be Borokai. So, Talk to you then. Take care. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, Blow.